0: So Money, episode 567, Aaron Lowry, author of Broke Millennial.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself.
0: Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life?
1: Welcome to So Money.
0: Are you a broke millennial? (laughs) Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Broke and millennial. Some might argue that those two words are one and the same. And our guest today is out with a fresh take on how young adults can live it up while paying it down and acclimating to the changes in today's financial world. Aaron Lowry is the new author of Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. The book has irreverent financial advice, taking into special account some of the newish circumstances that are facing young adults today, from unprecedented student loan debt to stagnant wages and a rise in everyday expenses, plus a delay in reaching so-called adulthood, affording a home, a wedding, a A family. Depressed much? Don't be. Erin is a personal finance expert. She's the founder of the famous Broke Millennial blog and says you can thrive. Plus, she offers candid advice on how to kindly back out of being a bridesmaid or groomsman in your second cousin's wedding of the four weddings that you've been invited to this summer because it's just too much money and you need to still pay your rent. (laughs) Take a listen. Aaron Lowry, welcome to So Money. Congratulations on Broke Millennial launching tomorrow. And thank you in advance for treating our listeners to a little incentive if they buy your book today. So stay tuned, everyone, for how to get your incentive if you buy the book today and only today. In the meantime, Aaron, welcome to the show and uh, let's have some fun. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So your journey started years ago with a blog. As many of my fantastic guests Have their journeys begin, whether it's they later launched a business or a book or a series of books. You started with a blog and with the intention of helping your fellow millennials with their finances and not necessarily because you went through a a tough time with money. You actually are very much an example of how we should as young people manage money, but you really felt it was important to direct some advice to your cohorts and and why do you think i mean aren't there enough books out there for millennials and money there are certainly enough books about money i didn't feel like there was enough specifically
1: addressing millennials and i think there's a mixture where a lot of books that are out there especially ones that get given around graduation time which is when my book is coming out uh, a lot of it has some like preaching and some finger wagging and a decent amount of them were written by people that are now 50 plus. And not that that advice is irrelevant by any means, but it doesn't necessarily address the pain points nor the way that millennials are living their lives. And some of the notable differences are certainly the student loan debt crisis that we're in, as well as just little things like millennials are more likely to be living with a romantic partner before getting married, if getting married at all. They're more likely to be having kids before marriage. And that it's this lifestyle shift that's
0: happening. Then the way we interact with money is therefore going to be different. That's such a good point. I didn't really think about that in this context, but you're absolutely right. People are getting married later in life. They're they're cohabitating without getting married. Earlier I was talking about your own personal story, you know, the blog that you started is broke millennial and tell us about the impetus for that given that you weren't necessarily a broke millennial yourself. So what was the inspiration? Yes, that's always something I have to say up top. This is not the
1: whiny ramblings of a broke millennial. This is about how to stop being one. And I used the moniker just because I felt like it was applicable to the generation. And it was a what a lot of my friends were talking about. Now, for reference point, I was living in New York City on less than $25,000 a year at that phase of my life. So I was by no means a well-to-do millennial. I was a figuring it out but I knew how to budget. And that was my whole backstory is that I grew up in a family that was very financially literate. We were talking about money from the time I was a little girl and I was learning money lessons with these kind of tough love tactics. And so by the time I got to New York City and I was living by myself and I was off parental welfare, as I call it, I was okay, even when I didn't make a lot because I knew how to handle it. So it wasn't as stressful as it could have been, or maybe even should have been at that point. And it wasn't until I have to say I was very naive. What you grew up around is normal to you. So that's kind of how you think everyone else is. And I slowly started to realize that a lot of my friends did not have this same relationship to money. And it was notably one night I was talking to a girlfriend of mine. We had gone out for some drinks. We were back in our little neighborhood of Astoria, Queens and kind of having a cup of coffee. And we were 20, three at the time. And she was bemoaning that she hated her job. And I said, you know, I gotta say, I don't really get it because you moved here to be an actress, but you haven't really given it a fair shake. So couldn't you be like waitressing or nannying because you're not married, you don't have kids, you don't have student loans, you don't have any other debt. Why not give it a shot? And she said, well, money just really stresses me out. I hope I have enough at the end of the month. And this was my light bulb moment. I genuinely did not realize, especially people who came from families of comfortable means, that they would have that kind of relationship to money, that it was just such a stress factor in their life. Again, very naive of me. So I started asking around and kind of crowdsourcing and realizing, wow. Most of my friends seem to feel this way. I want to do something about it. And that's why the blog started. It's a place where I started mostly with storytelling. It was a lot of, of my childhood stories that I would tell. And then I joke that I trick people into learning about finance by the end of the story.
0: It sounds to me like you are addressing also this sentiment amongst millennials that they. Didn't really have a lot of control. They also couldn't bother to hope and dream about the future because they were so bogged down by their monthly bills or their student loan debt or the job that they didn't have or the meager income they were making. Is that fair to say?
1: That's definitely one of the biggest pain points that I ended up addressing. And I think that while my life experience is slightly different, I picked my college based on scholarship, so I would come out debt free. But I tie all of that back to the fact that I was raised talking and learning about money and I'm dating someone. However, my boyfriend of nearly seven years, he does have pretty significant student loan debt. So it's something that I know will be part of my life, especially if we decide to get married. We now just live together, but it's it's an everyday part of our conversation. And I out earn him. So that's something you've certainly written about, Farnese, and that's I think an interesting thing for our generation is a lot of my girlfriends out earn their partners.
0: Mm-hmm when you're in your 20s and you're living in say in New York or Boston or San Francisco in a major metropolitan area you're actually your gen- the gender wage gap narrows significantly to something like 93 cents per every man's dollar which is not still great but it is to say that The younger you are as a female, I think the better your odds of making more. Um, and of course, as people quote unquote settle down, women settle down, they tend to have their careers are the ones that tend to be upended, um, at least temporarily. So, anywho, yeah, I can see where your book is completely needed because there aren't many books or blogs that really address these new norms. While you feel they're normal, maybe we haven't, the rest of the society hasn't really quite ca- caught up to the fact that this is a, a force to be reckoned with. Like the fact that women are making more, marriages are getting delayed, couples aren't getting you know uh, married before having kids. And another thing too is that while you may even have that job and you feel like you're living a great life in your 20s, the cost of living has risen so much more than salaries have risen. So there is this gap, you know, even though you might be your the one friend in the group that's got the job, you're still struggling to make those uh, to make those bills every month. Absolutely, especially, you know,
1: we have seen a migration of a lot
0: of millennials flocking
1: to urban environments that wasn't quite as common in generations past, especially by the time you got to your late 20s and a lot of previous generations, they're already out in the suburbs, settled down, owning a house, having kids and particularly women. And so I think that it's such an interesting shift in what we're seeing with millennials and that, you know, not to say that they're are not people that are, you know, mid to late 20s, settling down in the suburbs, having children. But I think that a larger majority of the population is waiting a lot longer and they're living in high cost of living areas. Now, part of that is the jobs. You know, I couldn't do a lot of what my job is if I were in a smaller town or didn't have the access to media that I do in New York City. But it's it's
0: the payoff cost of living versus job opportunities. Yeah, it's definitely a trade-off. Curious to get your opinion on the, this idea of adulthood. It seems like it's getting delayed compared to our parents' generation. Our parents were more quick to settle down, have the kids, buy the house. But is it really a delay or is it just uh, it's due to economics or is it due to just preference? I think it's a mix
1: of both. A lot of people are quick to point at the recession while certainly it can have some impact. I think that a big part of it is more of The gender norm shift and that you are seeing, you know, millennial women have one of the highest percentages of educated women ever in a generation and women are getting more opportunities than we've ever gotten before. And therefore we're delaying our career or we're delaying other milestones for our careers. And we're more likely to have two parent households that work and I think that part of the interesting thing is a lot of people tie back to economics. You can't afford to just have one parent working. And while that certainly is the case for some people in some environments, I think the other thing is women are choosing to stay in the workforce and they want to have careers. And it's, We haven't seen the shift the other way that more men are willing to necessarily become primary caregivers. Mm -hmm. A little bit, but it's not like we saw a 180 shift where it just completely role reversed. So I think that's part of the reason you see a two-parent working household is it's not just because they have to financially. It's also because the woman wants to have a career. That's
0: okay. Yeah, and sidebar, I don't think the expectation should be this role reversal. It should just be that it is what it is. More women now Agreed. working. It's on, you know, sometimes you read these headlines. It's like, well, you know, more women are working. So does that mean that more more men are going to be taking a step back and being more of the caretakers? And certainly some are, but it shouldn't be expected that that is what needs to happen in order for the household to be happy. Part of it is also
1: just about what is good for the mental health of the parents. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are starting to see that, Perhaps being a stay-at-home parent is not what's best for their mental health. You know, I I do know a couple um, young. They got married, which for our generation is relatively young, at like 24 and 23. The wife is a little bit older, and they had children at what is relatively young for a lot of urban millennials, by 26, 27. And they both still work, and the woman's out earning the husband, and they've talked ad nauseum about it, almost his entire salary goes to daycare, but it's better for his mental health right. for him to still be in the workforce. And that's why they choose to do it. Not because it makes the most sense on paper, but because mm-hmm. for them as a couple, that's what works best.
0: Amen to that. That is really, you're you're preaching to the choir here, me specifically. I, <laughs> I'm a big uh, advocate of not just being all about the numbers because certainly on paper, if you make a teacher's salary and daycare costs or a nanny costs fifty thousand dollars a year, or forty thousand dollars a year. You're, you're. It's obvious. Maybe at that point, what you're going to do? You make less than childcare. But what about the long term implications of that? And not to mention your health and happiness. Speaking of health, that's another pain point, right? That's kind of a a new a newish pain point for this generation, the millennials, in that. It's not as abundant as it was perhaps for our parents' generation. When you go work somewhere, it's not ex- assumed that they're going to give you this very generous health care plan. Although we can be on our parents' plan until 26, not everyone can take advantage of that. So uh, there is this added cost that, um, it, and even if you have health insurance, there's more out-of-pocket cost potentially. Did you address that in your book at all? It is sprinkled throughout
1: the book about what is different for us. That being one, I will say for people who are interested in hearing more about insurance, I highly recommend you pre-order and get that bonus chapter. Yeah. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Well, tell us how <laughs> we can get
0: that bonus chapter. I think we've waited. People have been waiting patiently enough. I won't wait till the very end, but I'll remind you at the end. But tell us now how to, how to get so, it. Yes, absolutely. So if you pre-order the book
1: and you send proof of purchase, so just screenshot the receipt on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, wherever you buy the book, screenshot it and email it to info at brokemillennial.com. And I will be sure that you receive your free bonus chapter
0: of the book. Wow. Awesome. Great. So Aaron, tell us a little bit more about you growing up. Uh, what was your biggest money memory? Oh, the biggest one is definitely the one
1: I talk about and write about the most. And that was when I was seven years old, my parents were having a yard sale. And from a very young age, my sister and I were both required to help pay for anything that we wanted. My dad instituted a policy of 50%. So if we were at a store and I saw a stuffed animal that I liked and I was like eight and I said, hey, can I have this? My mom or my dad would say, sure, if you pay 50%. So I was really encouraged from a very young age to start making money, especially if I wanted something. And that also helped curb impulse purchases, I will say. What did you do
0: to make the money at eight years old? Well, what I did...
1: For this particular moment, which is my first money memory, as I was trying to be a little entrepreneurial, and my friendship bracelet making business had all but failed. So I was trying to come up with a new way to make money. And with my mom having a yard sale, I had this idea to instead of selling lemonade, I was going to sell Krispy Kreme donuts, because people are coming very early in the morning. So I asked my dad if he would stake me. And obviously, he had to be the one to drive the car to go pick up the donuts and pay upfront for the cost of the donuts. And I kind of figured I would be like pulling one over on him and he would just buy the donuts for me. So I end up selling out and I'm seven at the time. My little sister's four. And she helped me with like being a little sales girl. I was calling her like the booth babe of the Krispy Kreme donuts. And so we sold out pretty quickly. And at the end, let's say I made 20 bucks. My dad came up and goes, All right. Well, it cost me $8 to buy you the donuts and Kaylin worked for you for part of the time. So you need to pay her $2. So your net profit is $10. And he Not actually a bad took profit the money margin still though. <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't bad, but I think the the part of this story that people are always shocked about is he didn't just tell me that he took the money. Yeah. He left me with $10, and
0: that is something <laughs> that has stuck with me forever. <laughs> so the title of that chapter is Thanks for taking 50% dad. Yes, and it's amazing mm. like that
1: really kind of kicked off my entire interest in money and how it worked. And then my parents worked in little ways to teach us about money similar, like just you know the 50% story, which then also extended to college tuition. And I think that it's important to say that they could pay for my tuition and my younger sister's tuition in full had they decided to but they both felt like we needed to have a stake in our education and a a financial stake at that. So my sister and I were both required to pay for 50% of our college tuitions. We both went to schools where we got scholarship money.
0: You know, it's no coincidence that those Americans who have wealth, accumulate wealth in their adult lives, looking back at their childhoods, they did work at a young age and not just um any job you know this opportunity to enterprise like you were given to decide what you wanted to sell and to think about the operating costs and um all the you know extras that go into running a bit quote unquote business in this this case um crispy <laughs> cream resale um you know, tell us about how that may have played into your role and now as an adult and pursuing your career and how you look at you know making money today as an adult, sure, well, one thing I think that's very notable at this point.
1: My dad was in the traditional business world for quite a long time, for a majority of his career, and he took a career shift about three years ago and started consulting. And he is very entrepreneurial at this point. He works in the lithium industry, which has become a very hot industry with the rise of energy efficiency and batteries and Tesla and all of that. So he's an entrepreneur now. My younger sister works in film and she is her own boss. She had a short premiere at Tribeca last year. She is doing very well shortly out of college. And then I feel like compared to her, she went right from undergrad into being her own boss and trying to make it on her own. I took a slightly more risk-averse route and went a little bit more traditional into the workforce. And for about five years, had the more traditional jobs where I had an employer and a paycheck and insurance and all of that. And it was shortly after I got the book deal when they always tell you, don't quit your day job, that I decided to take (laughs) the risk and invest in myself. And I had been building up this freelance career on the side. And so the primary way that I make money now is not through the book, not through the blog. It's writing and speaking about money for other outlets and going to colleges and talking to students about money. And it's just fascinating to me that we were raised with this kind of entrepreneurial spirit in mind, and it has manifested in my sister and I both being
0: our own bosses. Well, let me tell you, Erin, there is life after quitting your day job. And (laughs) I was not as bold as you to quit when my book was launched, but I got laid off. And I was not ever thinking of myself as an entrepreneur. I just had this freelance stuff going on on the side. And um, to me, it was just nice to have the extra income, but there's, uh, there's a lot of reward in the path that you're on. And I, I want to learn more from you. So tell me about a failure that you had, because up till now, we've talked about success and being raised with so much financial wherewithal. But was there a time when you made a big boo-boo and learned from it? And is that something that you could talk about in your book? That's a, a bit of a loaded question for
1: me always, because I don't feel that many of my mistakes are financial Um, you know, I I got set up very well early on. I say one of my biggest regrets is not investing early enough, which is not what most people would say in terms of a big mistake. My little sister actually started, she invested, we lived in Japan and then China when I was a kid. And my little sister invested in China mobile uh, right before China exploded in the global market. So she did pretty well for herself. And I basically had my money under a mattress for a very long time. I notably, this is a, a odd mistake. I didn't have a savings account for a really long time. I just kept a crap ton of money in checking, Mm -hmm. which isn't a big deal, but it's weird. Um, but I think that one of my, it's not a mistake necessarily, but it's interesting to me now having to balance finances with a partner and kind of the pain points that we experience, not all of which I can openly share because I do have to respect my boyfriend's privacy. But I think that it's very interesting to when you are a person who not only writes and talks about money professionally, but you have a lot of feelings about the right way to do things and having to learn how to have A conversation diplomatically with somebody else, keeping in mind their background, their relationship to money, the decisions that they made before they met you when they were 18, 19 years old are not things that you should be necessarily punishing them for, certainly today. Mm -hmm. And just that process of getting financially naked and learning how to build a life together with very different relationships to money. Um, My boyfriend and I come from very different backgrounds, not just socioeconomically, but how we personally relate to money. And I think that navigating that has been, at times, I've certainly tripped up. I think at times I have accidentally perhaps belittled him or said something that I shouldn't have said. And that's what I always warn people when they're getting financially naked is you need to have a great poker face Mm -hmm. because... If you laugh at someone when they get physically naked in front of you, they're never going to do it again. <laughs> so same goes with money. Yeah. You know, if, if you make a jab or a snarky comment, they're, they're going to be uncomfortable with you. And then trying to earn that trust back is certainly an uphill battle. And so while I know I'm speaking relatively vaguely, because again, I do kind of have to respect his privacy a little bit, I think that... For me, a a big area where I have failed and I'm learning how to do it right is with getting financially naked with my partner, with making sure he feels secure and comfortable talking about me. And I'm at no point putting him on trial for decisions he probably made years before we even ended up dating.
0: Yes. They say that the moment you become an adult is when you stop blaming your your childhood for whatever is going on in your adulthood, you know stop blaming your parents, stop blaming your upbringing, stop blaming you know your the past and start living your your now and planning your future so that's a that's an honest take i like I really appreciate that perspective, so tell us now what is your ultimate financial philosophy Erin? I mean, you've written this book, and I assume you have many thoughts on the best ways to run your financial life. But when it comes to your financial life, what is your money mantra? Spend on what you value. And I am ruthless in
1: prioritizing that. And I think the other thing that goes along with that is that other people are more than happy to spend your money. So standing up for spending what on what you value can actually be quite difficult. It sounds really easy and philosophy in practice. And one thing I point to all the time is weddings. And not only if you are personally going through one, but also being in them, getting invited to them and having to deal with someone else mandating how you are spending your money if you're in one.
0: Mm-hmm. That's how, a well, really it, dangerous. So give me that fact. script, Erin. I mean, because I yeah. asked this too, how do you decline being in a wedding or attending a wedding if you don't have An obvious excuse, you know? Really, how do you do it without breaking the relationship? Sure. I think declining being in it, I'll get to that
1: second because that's a lot harder. Declining Mm -hmm. an invite, two ways to do it. One, if you don't live near the person, then it's obviously harder to have a face to face conversation. But part of it's being honest. And I'm a little Emily Post about this, I will say. I still send a gift if I was invited and Mm -hmm. can't attend and have to decline. And I think part of it is you have to be honest and it can be as simple as, you know, my boyfriend and I had seven weddings that we got invited to last year and every single one involved travel. So we, we couldn't do them all. And part of it was being a little honest with a couple of people being like, I-, I love you and I would love to be there for a special day and I'm honored you invited me. Unfortunately, I got six other invites this year and it's just, I'm not able to make absolutely every single one. Mm-hmm. So next time we see you, I want to take you out to dinner and drinks mm-hmm. and I want to hear all about your wedding, but unfortunately I will not be able to be there on the day. Oh, and yeah. then I send a little gift, nothing major, but something to show that I'm thinking of them and I'm appreciative. That's now, Perfect. In- Yes. In terms of declining an actual be in my bridal party invite, much more difficult. I will say, while it can be awkward upfront, what you don't want is to be in it and go through the process and get resentful. I have had a falling out with a family member, an extended family member over being in her wedding. Hmm. Because it got to a point where the demands that were being asked of the bridal party financially were, in my opinion, just egregious. And it was hard for me to bite my tongue. And it therefore got to a point where I kind of became a mouthpiece for what everyone was feeling, but I was the only one that was saying things. And it just got really difficult to navigate. Now, in retrospect, I wish I had just said, oh, I so appreciate it. But again, I just have a few other weddings this year, and I'm certainly going to be there for you on the day, and I would love to come to your bachelorette party or your bridal shower, but I just unfortunately can't
0: commit to being in the actual bridal party. And that would have been less awkward. True. And also, it's not good, Juju, to have someone in your bridal party who is rolling her eyes or just unhappy you know, uh, two face, not that you were being two faced or doing any of this, but you know what I mean? It's just I was like too honest, frankly. Yeah. Like it,
1: that's what caused some of the tension. Right. And you know, every, again, I mishandled some of the situations as did she, and there were things that got said on both sides that were petty and childish. we were also a little younger than we are now, but I think part of it is just if you're not going to have fun and you're not going to be a good sport about it, then just back out.
0: Yes, but also public service announcement <laughs> to all forthcoming brides and grooms please be conscientious of how you operate your party, you know, your bridal party and these pressures of going and having the bachelor or bachelorette party in Vegas or overseas or you know, all these different events and, you know, two outfit changes and, you know, traveling to do your destination wedding, I, it does add up for your 26-year-old bridesmaid and mm-hmm. groomsman to the point where they may not be able to have their wedding of their dreams. Yeah. So and yeah.
1: your own wedding is another great place where other people are happy to spend your money, namely parents of both parties. But I mean, there's just so much pressure that goes into all of this. And I think about it a lot because I'm in this phase of life But that is, again, an example of figure out what you value. And it can take some time to figure that out, you know, but Mm -hmm. figure out what it is and then prioritize spending
0: there. Yes. I believe it was Joe Biden, right, who had that famous quote where he said, don't tell me what you value, show me your budget and I'll tell you what you value. It's so true. It's 100% true. Speaking of budgets, how do you address budgeting in your book as this is something that I feel is the least exciting topic, but kind of an inevitable thing that people... I have friends now who are approaching 40 who are like, all right, fine, Farnoosh, how do I do a freaking budget? Because I just can't keep tabs on everything and it's too much. I have two kids now and I didn't have a budget in my 20s, but now I really just want a budget. Well, first, I acknowledge that
1: everybody hates it. That is like the opening part of that chapter is talking about the fact that it's the dreaded B word. Most people don't want to do it. However, if you want to have any control over your money at all, the baseline that you need to master is your cash flow. And you need to know exactly how much is coming in and exactly how much is going out. And then if that number is negative, figuring out how to make it a not negative. And whether that's earning more or spending less or a combination of the two, that's the position that you're starting in that you have to work up from. Now, what I do in that chapter as I actually split it, I call it 101 level and 201 level budgeting. And I go through a bunch of different budgeting styles to give people options about what they can do. And what I encourage anyone to do is to try out a few forms because what works for me is not necessarily going to be what works best for you or any of the listeners. So you have to... Don't get discouraged if one version fails epically and you just can't stay on task and you just can't make it work for you. Find one that does. And I promise something will work. I personally use something that I call the no budget budget, which is misnamed because of course it's still a budget. But I've gotten to a point where. I have my spending on lock. I'm not aggressively trying to pay down debt. I'm I'm out of those kind of phases of anything with money. And I do address in the book how, if you're in them, where you should go. But with the no budget budget, uh, what I basically do is i pay myself first so i put money into savings putting money aside for retirement then i put money aside for all the bills that i'm going to have to pay and then the remainder is what i have to spend in the month so i don't put it into buckets or percentages or envelopes i just know hey you have x amount that you have to spend this much or this month um you know if you blow it all in the first three weeks and the last week you're down to rice and beans and ramen and that's how that works Mm -hmm.
0: i sort of do that i do a no budget budget Paying myself first, doing all the boring stuff first. Like I guess I do a boring budget. Um, yeah, business in the front, party in the back. Yeah, so the mullet of budgets. The mullet of budgets. <laughs> where the first thing that you that that I address that that is visible to me is, you know, the retirement accounts, the five twenty nine. Gosh, you know, the credit card bills, the the other you know recurring monthly bills. And then with whatever's left, I can decide if I can plan that vacation next month. And if I don't have enough money, that's when I start cutting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I do like twice a year, I just like slash things. I'm like, all right, we don't need cable. I'm getting rid of this. I'm getting rid of that membership. And um, I don't miss it. I will say too, I call
1: the no budget budget a 201 level uh, because I think you have to get a really good handle on your cash flow before you do it. But also in order to make sure I'm staying on target and I'm not overspending, I do a 15 minute weekly money meeting with myself every Sunday where I sit down and I run through and check in on all of my credit cards, checking in on all of my accounts and make sure that I'm still on target. Because what can very easily happen with the no budget budget if you don't pay attention is you see all this money in your checking account. And if you're paying with credit cards and they're not getting paid off until the end of the month, you easily can overspend because you're not actually seeing how much money is coming out of your checking account.
0: True. Truth. Hashtag truth. You have a hashtag (laughs) that you're using for this book as well, right? Yes. It's hashtag G-Y-F-L-T. Get your financial life together. I love it. And tell us again how we can get the free chapter, the bonus chapter. If we buy today, Yep. If you
1: pre-order before May 2nd, so by 11.59 tonight, and you send proof of purchase, so just screenshot it and send it to info at brokemillennial.com. I will email you back with the bonus chapter.
0: All right, Erin Lowry, thank you so much. Again, the book is Broke Millennial. Stop scraping by and get your financial life together. Thanks for coming on the show and congrats on your first of many book launches. Thank you. And thanks so much for having me. so much to Erin for stopping by. Maybe you want to forward this episode to your 20-something friends and relatives who need some guidance. If you'd like to learn more about Erin, check out BrokeMillennial.com. And Erin is on Twitter at BrokeMillennial. If you missed any of this, just head over to SoMoneyPodcast.com and let us know what you think of the new site redesign. And if you have a question for me for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh, very simple. Just click on Ask Farnoosh at the upper right corner of the site. And you'll be well on your way to reaching me. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone, and I hope your day is so money.